This call is being recorded. Hello, and welcome to Sustainable Business Fridays, hosted by the Bard MBA in Sustainability. My name is Stephanie Milbergs, and I'm Assistant Director of the Bard MBA program. We are thrilled to have two special guests on our show today, Cristiano Oliveira, a sustainability consultant at Fibria in Brazil, and one of our Bard MBA alums, Rochelle March, who is an analyst at the think tank and strategic advisory firm, Sustainability. Before turning over the mic to our second year Bard MBA student, Mariana Seza, who will lead today's interview, I want to provide some background about the Bard MBA in sustainability. We are one of a few programs globally that fully integrate sustainability into our curriculum from the ground up. We are a low residency program where part of our courses are taught online and the other portion are taught over long weekend residencies in New York City. We are a deeply experiential program with first year students partaking in a course called NYC Lab, where they work on real world sustainability challenges for clients. This year, our clients are Siemens Wind Power, JetBlue, and the New York State Department of Agriculture Markets. Thank you all for joining us today. Please do mute your phones and headsets at this time to reduce the chance of feedback during this call. I will now turn over the floor to Mariana, who will kick off today's interview. Welcome to all of you, and thank you for being with us today. Thanks so much, Stephanie. My name is Mariana Sosa. I'm a second year in the Bard MBA program. Uh, I have a background in social enterprises in New York and was a EDF Climate Corps fellow this summer for Baxter Healthcare, working on energy management. I'm really looking to this, uh, forward to this call. It's a slightly different format for anyone who has joined before sort of circled around uh, a recent publication from the firm Sustainability. And we have a case study and someone who helped co-write the publication. So I'll let them sort of introduce themselves to give some context around uh, how we all came here together. So Rochelle, why don't you start? Sure thing. Hi, Mariana. Thanks for having us today. And yes, the publication you reference is the second uh, report in a research series about business model innovation for sustainability. So tweaking how companies generate revenue in a way that creates both social, financial, and environmental value or distributes economic value more equitably among stakeholders. And uh, we featured um, Fibria, a pulp and paper company from Brazil, um, of which where Cristiano works, uh, because they are undergoing a business model innovation for sustainability and thinking of new ways to use their mass land assets. And uh, I'm an analyst at Sustainability that Mariana mentioned. It's a think tank and consulting firm based on catalyzing business opportunities in service of greater sustainability. Um, we have a New York office, also in London and San Francisco, and um, are really excited about today's call. So thanks again. Christiana, why don't you have a bit of your background? Uh, thank you for the opportunity, Stephanie and, and Mariana. It's a pleasure to be with you and, and Rochelle here on this call today. Um, my name is Cristiano Oliveira. I'm a sustainability consultant at the uh, pulp company uh, Fibria, based in uh, Brazil, but connected very much to an international market um, all around the world. Um, my background, I've been at Fibria for around uh, five years now, uh, since the very sort of beginning of the company. Um, and prior to that, I was a researcher working with sustainability as a researcher, like now, I try to uh, connect sustainability 
two corporate strategies. Fantastic. So we will be talking a bit more about the publication, um, but before we talk about innovating on industry structures, why don't we learn a bit more about pulp and paper industry? Um, so the section of the case study for Fibria in, in the paper, which I recommend everyone download and read, Model Behavior 2, um, is seeing the forest for the trees. So Cristiano, could you just give us sort of an overview of the pulp and paper industry and the role it plays in, um, in Brazil and globally, I suppose? Absolutely. Um, so Fibria is part of a sort of long value chain. Um, we produce uh, short fiber eucalyptus pulp, and as such, we uh, manage forest assets uh, to produce pulp. Um, the Brazilian context is um, Brazil is a very big country, uh, relatively sparsely uh, populated. It is in approximately 250 counties or municipalities um, in terms of forest operations. And as such, uh, we have quite a direct contact and, and therefore impact uh, with numerous communities that neighbor uh, not only our mills, of which we have three, but particularly our forest operations, uh, which, as I said, are quite spread out. Um, because of Brazilian legislation, the connection between the business and natural capital, and of course, because of Fibia's own business that is based on forest capital, is quite clear. Um, we we have approximately 800,000 hectares of land, uh, of which 35% are of reserves and conservation areas. Um, we produce pulp for an international market, as I said. Uh, this pulp is transformed into paper. Fibia currently exports uh, 91 of, of the pulp that we produce, 91% of the pulp that we produce, uh, primarily to Europe, North America, and then Asia. Uh, this pulp is then transformed into tissue and uh, paper for, for printing and writing. Uh, therefore, given that we export to these sort of, for the purposes of these two very broad segments, uh, we end up as part of a a significantly large value chain and, and 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 it's important to understand where we are located in, in this value chain so our customers are paper producers again tissue and, and paper for printing and writing and our customers customers are you know retailers and, and other distributors um, and we're quite sensitive to the sustainability pressures that are exerted um, particularly at the beginning of this value chain, uh, traditionally from NGOs and consumer associations uh, to uh, our retailers, from our retailers to our customers and our customers to us. Mm -hmm. And how could you, I think you may have mentioned how old the company is, but how long has Fibria been managing the forest operations that are sort of under your ownership right now? So Fibria began as such as recently as uh, September 2009. Um, it's the result of a merger of two companies, uh, and the company that was founded originally was founded in 1967. Uh, so it's it's uh, you know as a business model it has existed for a long time, 
Um, but I think we'll have the opportunity to speak more about the more recent changes and the opportunities uh, in this new phase of the company. And just to give some context to the listeners, is it common for to sort of be structured in a similar way to Fibria to own forest operations and the mill? Um, is that is that like forward integration unique to you, um, or is that fairly common? In pulp and paper? Uh, that's that's a model that's been uh, increasingly common. Uh, what has changed over the years is that we've depended on um, approximately 15 to 20 percent, it depends on the year, uh, from wood sourced from external producers, uh, oftentimes smallholders. Okay. And so you mentioned um, that Fibria is sensitive to, to concerns. So let's dig into that a little bit more. Um, obviously, you are a case study in model behavior because something changed. So what were the pressures that you as a company were experiencing, um, either financial, social, environmental? What were some of the pressure points that came to a head? So it's, it's important to talk about uh, sort of what happened in the 90s and early 2000s with an increase in interest uh, from consumers and particularly uh, NGOs on social environmental issues. Um, it was quite clear to them that a way in was uh, through the concept of traceability. So how does the items uh, that are sold in Europe and North America in particular, uh, how do they get there? How are they produced? Under what sort of conditions? And one of the first um, points of, of conversation to start was uh, related to forest and, and forest products. And there was a significant concern um, among Europeans and among American NGOs uh, related to deforestation, related to uh, human rights and, and production of uh, forest products. Um, and with this, there was a rise of uh, forest certification schemes such as FSC, PFC, SFI. Um, and these began as a sort of interest from these NGOs to uh, have an eco-label or a social and ecological label uh, for the products that are sold in the supermarkets. Um, this forced the NGOs to put pressure on the retailers at the beginning of the value chain to put pressure, as I described, on the uh, paper producers that obviously looked at you know, pulp producers and, and forest owners uh, such as ourselves um, to, to demonstrate that they were at a level that was in conformity to the expectations of the NGOs and of the consumer associations uh, related to social and environmental uh, management. Um, and, and therefore, this was, I'd say, one of the biggest sort of shifts in terms of sustainability, which was not the understanding of sustainability as purely philanthropy, but something that was hand-in-hand uh, hand with business and business strategy and business management. Uh, the market could only, the, the sort of the European and North American market for forest products companies could only really be explored uh, by those companies that demonstrated through the achievement of these forest certifications, through the achievement of these labels, uh, that they were they, they had the best practices. I think it's a really interesting part of the story because as consumers who get to see the labels, we don't necessarily think like how 
how many chains back into the world you're actually dealing with, like the real asset in this case would be a forest. Um, and so could you just say a little bit about where so there was sort of pressure on the industry in aggregate, but was would you have been approached by an NGO so that you could sort of be part of like, you know, a certain um, supplier portfolio or were it your were your customers saying specifically, like, we need you to do these things in order to fit into X and Y, Z certification? Where was, you know, who was asking you to do it, and then who gave you the support to actually start to certify and understand what those certifications would mean? Yeah, interestingly, it's it's sort of uh, both efforts that took place in the past and still take place today. Um, mm -hmm. So... On the one hand, there are numerous uh, multi-stakeholder platforms that promote best practices uh, in, in forest management uh, related to uh, social and environmental aspects. Um, directly related to these uh, forest management certifications and some indirectly uh, related to them, um, the, world, uh, the WWF, for instance, has this uh, really interesting project over the past few years called the New Generation Plantations which is a multi-stakeholder platform that looks at best practice in uh, sustainable forest management throughout the world. Um, but I would say at, at the time, that the, the main push was from uh, our customers. Uh, various of our customers have uh, public statements and public commitments uh, well, they, well, they say you know, 100% of the fiber that we source, the pulp that we source, must come from uh, certified uh, sources. Great. So we've heard that there were social and environmental pressures and a merger happened. So I think it might be a good time to sort of pivot towards putting Rochelle in the spotlight um, and hearing a little bit more context about the paper, and then we'll sort of pull it all together to understand um, what what Fabria did in light of those challenges. So, Rochelle, why don't you tell us a bit more um, about the paper and sort of the process of pulling this uh, this body of research together? Sure. So, um, last year we put out a re well. I'll start from the very beginning, which is essentially that oftentimes, in order for a company to implement sustainability, there seems to be a caveat. Um, okay, we're going to do more environmental things, we're going to expand our social uh, prerogatives, but it's going to cost us, and it's going to take something away from the business and sort of add to it. Of course, there's exceptions, but that's often the assumption. So what stimulated this type of research was how can a company inherently generate its revenue in a way that is just more sustainable in general. Um, so last year we uh, released a report called Model Behavior, 20 Business Model Innovations for Sustainability, where we essentially surveyed the landscape of different kinds of innovations. Um, some you've heard of, like crowdsourcing, crowdfunding, buy one, give one, closed loop where you reuse all the materials again. Um, and there's tons of other ones, like uh, bottom of the pyramid, which is where you look at the most poverty-stricken element of the population that is generally ignored by markets because margins are so low, but if you get a, a mass um, a critical mass of that population, you can generate revenue and provide new opportunities like banking services or telecommunications to a marginalized population, thus enhancing some kind of social value as well. 
So we wanted to look into these things and we cataloged them according to different um, segments, including financial and uh, environmental, et cetera. But what we found was that most of these innovations happen within small to medium enterprises, and the large Fortune 500 firms aren't really innovating their business models very often. And this is a problem for a number of reasons. One is a problem for the companies themselves that Cristiano is, is alluding to a little bit, is that a lot of companies are, are being disrupted by changes in the marketplace, by competitors, by changing desires of consumers, and thus have to change um, revenue models in some way. And the other is if we are to move into a sustainable future, we need the entities with the scale and the impact that they can provide to really innovate and create more sustainable outcomes. So that's, so and model behavior two started with how can we inspire these large firms to undergo business model innovations? Um, and we came down to a number of things. First, there's three main factors that are influencing these shifts. The biggest one, or the, the first one, is external conditions, both constraints on the business, like climate change, resource scarcity, big fluctuations in commodity markets that are causing companies to pause and consider alternatives. Other external um, factors are areas of momentum, like digitization, uh, the sharing economy, um, certain trends that are providing more access and stimulation to think about new ideas and new ways of doing business. But even if these things are happening within the, cult, the company itself, it's really important that the culture is open to innovation and is willing to take risks, to communicate, to collaborate, and often there is uh, a need of senior leadership to push forward an innovation agenda and one that prioritizes sustainable innovation. And I'm sure Christiana will tell you a little bit about the importance of, of senior leadership as well. Um, and then in the report, we also look to the, you know, let's say you don't work for a company that is thinking uh, innovatively and has innovative culture, and probably the majority of us, unfortunately, do work in such a company. How can you, as an internal innovator, motivate change and catalyze conversations to move forward an innovation agenda? Um, and that's why it was so great to interview kind of these actual internal innovators in the company, like Cristiano, like Vinicius, who um, is a coworker of his that works in the strategy, who really started to see the change, pinpoint it, and then start conversations to get it going within the company. And in the report itself, um, you can download it from our website, sustainability.com, Model Behavior 2. We outline five tools and tactics that we found that internal innovators often use and can come to be very helpful. And uh, we're doing a lot of work now on business model mapping, so mapping how the company generates revenue, which surprisingly most people don't really think about or even acknowledge and also mapping according to stakeholders or people who are affected by the business and how certain tweaks uh, here and there, innovations can remedy value that's being destroyed for certain stakeholders, including communities, environments, and even customers. So that's a bit about MB2. And um, one thing that was really important about this report, too, was to get hands-on knowledge about large financial uh, large Fortune 500 firms who are undergoing such shifts, and Fibrio was one of them that we 
profiled in this report. And how did you, when you were sort of surveying, you know, that that list of potential um, companies, did were there moments where you were like, we don't know if this is business, if this is innovation or not? Like, there are, because there is sort of, sort of a lot of incremental change. So how did you, was it just sort of a gut check to say, like, no, this is actually a completely different way mm-hmm. of, you know, of thinking for the company? Sure, yeah, definitely. We had a long list, um, but only a couple of them were were really solid in the way that, one, it needed to be a large financial firm, oh, sorry, not financial, but a large Fortune 500 firm that was, um, you know, using this to generate a sizable amount of revenue for their company, so not just a social enterprise offshoot or some, some collaboration with an NGO, but really part of their company strategy. Two, it had to um, not just be a process or product innovation. So product innovation is when you just kind of make a product more green and it has to do more with invention and, for example, laundry detergent that you change the formula and it's just more sustainable. That does generate revenue but doesn't change the way a product generates revenue. So that didn't count, nor a process innovation, which is more operationally and functionally focused and um, isn't a fundamental business model change. So... And then, of course, it had to create something uh, of social, economic, or distribute financial value more equitably, um, and, and, or in other words, had to be some kind of innovation for sustainability. You know, a lot of companies are mentioned for innovation, like Airbnb and Warby Parker and, and Zipcar, uh, which are excellent companies and really have changed the landscape. But not all of their outcomes are generally are sustainable outcomes. So that was another criteria. Right. Um, so now that we we know what innovation should look like, if we turn back to Cristiano, um, we mentioned the sort of management changes and how it's important to have senior leadership on board. So why don't you tell us a little bit more about what what happened and why the conditions were ripe for, for innovation at Cypria? So uh, I think Cypria's story is interesting because it starts um, with the disruption of the business itself. Um, so Cypria was formed in this sort of time of crisis, uh, 2009, um, one company bought the other, so it was sort of this, this complicated merger, difficult process of integration, not only of systems and of processes, but obviously of uh, two disparate cultures um, internally. At the same time, this creation of a new company led to an opportunity of rethinking what that business would look like. Um, the companies that formed Fuya, Ara Cruz and VCP, they were both very much focused on pulp production. Um, so their you know, missions were along the lines of to be the biggest, the best, the brightest pulp producer in the world. Um, Fuya had a chance to rethink what it meant uh, to be a pulp producer in Brazil. And the conclusion um, at the highest levels of governance, of course, was that there was an opportunity to think of the company not as a pulp producer, not as primarily industry, um, but to look at the vocation that it had 
to look at the expertise, the skill sets, uh, the, the, the wealth of research that it had generated over the past four decades to be a forest company. A forest company, of course, that primarily produced pulp or up to this point only produces uh, pulp, but with an intelligence around the forests and thinking of a global transition. So what are the what are the megatrends currently? And, and, and we're in a, an important year in terms of climate change. Uh, we see a shift in the economy towards bioproducts. Um, this might take uh, long. It, it might not take so long, but it will happen. This shift will take place. And Fibia, as a pulp producer, wasn't identified as itself as a pulp producer, wasn't as well-placed as it is today as a forest producer. Um, of course, this led to, you know, discussions around internal, around culture, uh, an identity, company identity. Um, it led the senior leadership to uh, rethink the strategic mandate that it had. It's a huge shift for a pool producer to think about um, other businesses um, because in terms of production, we, we know about forests, but in terms of markets, what we know is pulp. So we had to bring in um, different partners, experts, stakeholders to discuss this. Uh, the diversification of the business uh, had to reverberate throughout the company's governance itself. Uh, so an innovation committee was created that is very much aligned with the company's uh, sustainability committee. And the company is looking at new factors that are relevant worldwide to uh, new opportunities that are relevant worldwide to uh, forest products um, and the positioning of the company. So we're still a pulp producer. 100% of the revenue is based on uh, pulp sales, but we have a target uh, to shift that so that it's 80% pulp, 20% other products uh, apart from pulp that could include uh, biofuels, bioplastics, among other things. Right. So I'm realizing a half hour into the call and I haven't even let you talk about <laughs> the amazing things you've done. So why don't you tell us a bit about the changes in the way that you um, manage the assets and the sort of natural, natural, social, and environmental capital that you have, and then I can start poking you again about how, how you did it. Uh, that's interesting. Another uh, sort of disruption phase within the company was um, in terms of the social conflicts that it had at, at the very uh, beginning of its formation, um, particularly related to indigenous populations uh, around its forests and in, two, in one Brazilian state called uh, Spirito Santo. Um, Basically, the uh, uh, basis of the relationship was was charity, was philanthropy. It was not based on on trust. Uh, that was one of the things that at a very early stage the company had to uh, figure out. And obviously, this is something that the company can't figure out by itself. It's a it's a shift in in mindset. We needed to bring uh, with us. Uh, stakeholders. We needed to bring in experts to help the company understand how to better position itself in relation to 
uh, the neighboring communities. Um, we have some data that, that, that demonstrates that this has, you know, the relationship with neighboring communities, particularly indigenous communities, has gotten better over the past uh, few years. Um, we, we use what we call a favorability index uh, that hovered around 50% in the past. That means that, you know, half the people didn't really uh, see our presence in society very well. We, we weren't seen as a company that added value to those communities. And nowadays, our favorability index hovers around 70 to 72 percent, and we have a long-term target to uh, slowly get up to uh, 80 percent. As a company that really you know, occupies a lot of space, um, a lot of land mass. We, we need to be really attentive to the concerns of our stakeholders and try to sit, shift our, our posture to a defensive and, and reactive one to uh, one that is more open to uh, feedback from our stakeholders. Uh, our stakeholders, as we understand, through constructive dialogues with them, we, we can become a better company, a more robust company for them by reducing our negative impacts, but also by reducing a neg our negative impacts, we can become a more robust uh, company for our investors and for our other stakeholders. Um, because we become a company that is has a social license to operate and is seen in a more positive light and, and faces adversity with uh, better tools. Great. Yeah, so, um, um, if I could just cut in for a second, this is Rochelle, um, and just clarify some of the business model change that Fibria did and then how it, it did benefit their stakeholder um, and shareholders was, you know, Christiana was talking about Fibria becoming a forest company and thinking differently about its assets, which is which is a lot of land. Um, and dealing with the social stakeholders and for example, not all of that land is prime for growing trees. So, you know, feel free to correct me, Cristiano, but from what I understand, Fibria said, Well, what can we do with this land? that we can still make it, you know, useful to us as a company, but also, you know, our stakeholders. So Pibri has been looking into, um, you know, the land that's not so great for growing trees, doing sustainable land development to, to support communities or putting solar panels on top of them and using them for energy generation instead of pulp growing. So those are a couple of examples in addition to the biofuel and bioplastics from the land assets that Fibria is using to shift their how they're generating their revenue. That, that's exactly right. The, the decision to become, without changing the assets, uh, without changing people, a forest company as opposed to a pulp producer might seem like a subtle change in terms of semantics, but it's a huge change in terms of mindsets and business model uh, because you see your assets in a different light. So, as Rochelle said, land that didn't really have a vocation for uh, uh, eucalyptus to produce pulp, well, if you're a pulp producer, you're going to keep that land um, because that's, that land is yours and, and your business is pulp. 
Uh, whereas if you sort of look at things in a much more broader way, because you're a forest business and and and, and pulp produ- production is 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 a central piece, but it's not the only piece in the puzzle. Uh, then you can consider other opportunities that add more value to the company and to society. Right. So, um, what are what are some of the examples of things that you're doing with with land that you know isn't isn't right for eucalyptus at this point? So, as as Rochelle mentioned, this is still at sort of early stages in terms of. Uh, mapping the possibilities, uh, we're looking at possibly taking some of this land and exploring the opportunities for real estate. And it's important to mention that because sustainability is embedded within the company culture, um, this, when we talk about new aspects of the business, um, all of them, not just pulp, are still connected to a sustainability vision, to the sustainability uh, strategy. So we're talking about, you know, new processes, new products, but all of them looking at the social and environmental impacts that we're generating, the positives and the negatives, trying to optimize the positives and mitigate the negative impacts and risks. Um, so we're looking at, you know, the opportunities around real estate, and in particular. Uh, looking at the concept of sustainable neighborhoods uh, and how we can associate with partners in that sense to generate value from the land. Uh, We're looking at new technologies. We're looking at um, still producing eucalyptus, uh, but not just for pulp, but probably adding uh, uh, production lines around uh, the generation of biofuels. Um, so there are numerous opportunities there that we're exploring. Um, we haven't landed on on just one just yet, uh, but these are sort of our perspectives for the future. And when you were sitting down with an executive team with what sounds sort of like a, a blank canvas, of like, you know, you were looking at your assets in a completely new way, um, what were your best practices for making people feel comfortable thinking outside of the box and you know sort of switching to an innovation mindset so the the innovation mindset itself has existed uh sort of from the very beginning of the company um it's It's interesting to note that while I think most of us think of of forest companies is sort of connected to a traditional uh, mindset, to traditional sort of on-the-ground technologies. This eucalyptus, uh, sustainable forest management, this is, you know, quite high technology in some senses in Brazil. We're talking about, you know, the diversification of clones. We're talking about uh, mapping out climate change um, and how this can impact us and how we must adapt and to adapt means having the best genetic material for the future, the, the, the most adapted genetic material for those specific conditions, microclimatic conditions of uh, weather patterns uh, for the future. So, you know, innovation has, has been very much a part of uh, this company since 
since the outset, since the, the late 60s. Um, so it's just a matter of expanding the scope uh, of, of that vision. Uh, so we're talking still about, you know, forests, we're talking about land, and, and this is where our vocation lies. This is, you know, what we've been looking at for the past many years. But now we add a, a new element of it, which is, well, you know, yes, forests for pulp, but what about, you know, the, that land, not just for forests, but for other things. So it's 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 an exercise, it's an internal exercise in, in allowing you know, that much leeway, that much extra leeway for whoever's already inside, but also bringing in partners that have the knowledge that, that we don't have. Um, so complementing our mindsets with the mindsets of those that, that deal with land in, in, in other ways, to look at other technologies. So academia and other companies, uh, you know, stakeholders in general are seen as potential partners on this road. Um, I'm seeing that it's it's 12:40, and I usually don't give enough time for questions. So I will open it up now. And if Rochelle or Stephanie, if you have any, um, we can see if anyone on the line does. I have more, <laughs> obviously. But perfect. Thank you, Mariana. Um, yeah. So at this time, if you have a question for Cristiano or Mich Rochelle about the report, about what what we've been discussing, please feel free to chime in right now. Um, just take yourself off mute and speak. Um, there's no raising hands function here, so feel free to to contribute to the conversation. Well, I think we have a shy audience, but I will open it up again at some point if something comes mm -hmm. to mind. Um, Mariana, I know you have more questions, so mm -hmm. why don't you keep on going? Unless, Rochelle, there's something you wanted to bring up at this point. Um, no, I think, uh, I'd go ahead, Mariana. Okay. Okay. With your question. Um, so one thing, one question I do have in sort of, you know, it's a bit, probably a bit of a longer um, time frame concern for uh, for Fibria, and I'm sure it's part of your sort of goals to transition to 80% pulp and 20% other, but trends in um, digitization, which Rochelle mentioned. So the potential that the world just, you know, uses less paper products. Um, how, you know, how do you as a company manage trend with I'm sure you personally see as, you know, sort of a good good in many ways, but also um sort of changes changes the entire storyline of, of the products you sell. Well that's a good question, Mariana, but you need to think about um it's important to reflect about where, where Fibria's uh, business lies. So the the, okay. the the business model in terms of whole production is uh connected to um, emerging markets, um, particularly in Asia. Um, we're producing uh, paper for our hygiene purposes, tissue. Um, so even though there is a trend in digitization, there is a reduction uh, in parts of the world related to uh, uh, paper for printing and writing purposes. Um, in emerging markets, uh, there is an increase as, as as these countries develop, there is an increase in printing and writing paper. The, the, there hasn't been a, a leapfrog trend uh, jumping from 
sort of uh, low levels of alphabetization to high levels, uh, skipping sort of printing and writing paper straight to the digital, uh, straight to digital means. And at the same time, because of, you know, because tissue products are so prevalent in our society, uh, we haven't seen a, a reduction at all. And we don't foresee a reduction in consumption of tissue products anytime soon. Yeah. And when you're, if you're looking at um, emerging markets, are you seeing sort of similar requests about the eco-label trend, for example, or, you know, what, are you, are you selling a premium product because you have, let's say, for, I'm, I'm actually not sure the percentage of your portfolio which um, would fall under sort of an eco-label management, but how does that, um, how does that play out? It's, the emerging markets are still shy related to uh, forest uh, product certification. Um, there, there has been an increasingly large push from uh, NGOs and multi-stakeholder platforms uh, to to try to get uh, the idea not so much to consumer associations themselves, but try to uh, engage retailers, for instance. Uh, so that they create uh, uh, policies uh, so that they can buy more certified products, but it's still it's still shy. It, it, I think it's a trend that you know inevitably will happen, but at this point it's still quite uh, slow. Right, and in your sort of within the space, um, I'm I'm sort of assuming that there's not a terrible amount of sort of like, you know, the product that comes out of um, from one forest or another doesn't look different, but perhaps it's your, you know, your distribution network or something about your business that is a competitive advantage. Um, so what, what does Cibria sort of position as selling to these really big, these buyers? Yeah, our product itself, uh, eucalyptus, at least eucalyptus craft pulp, it's a it's, uh, it's a standardized product, it's a commodity. Um, sort of our key advantages are related to logistics, so um, internal logistics within Brazil, but also, again, we export over 90% of what we produce, um, and we are part owners of an exclusive uh, pulp transportation port, port terminal uh, that is located a mere four kilometers away from uh, our largest mill. So this is, you know, a, a great and, and uh, very competitive uh, point of, of exit from Brazil for, for pulp. Um, also, you know, certification, forest certification allows us to have a portfolio of clients that, that value sustainability, that, that connect to us um, in that sense. And and this is something that we see as a, a global trend. Uh, the involvement of all parts of the value chain in the sustainability conversation. Yeah, and it does. It does seem that the the companies who are leading, um, not necessarily in your industry, but in the sustainability conversation, are those who seem to sit down and say, "What do we do really well?" And how can we use that, you know, to provide a really different form of value to the world, as you said, moving away from the philanthropy, the philanthropic model. Um, 
which is great. Um, I let's see if there's any questions. Again, if people have become less shy, um, otherwise, if, if, will, if I, I can just connect your last yeah, yeah. point to to Rochelle's uh, research, um, I think you know one thing that sustainability has been doing over the past few years and model behavior two points to that direction is that in the past sustainability has been seen as sort of a form of uh, let's say protection of, of value as a risk mitigation strategy and the direction that model behavior two points at is, is a really positive one which is you know these these companies can can look at sustainability not just from a risk mitigation perspective but from the perspective of the generation of value, the creation of opportunities. And that's obviously much more exciting. Definitely. Thanks, Cristiano. And I'd like to add, too, that one of the tools that Fibria used to kind of look at um, not just risk mitigation, but opportunity, was, was mapping its full extensive business model and articulating where the company was maybe not providing a lot of value for communities, customers, et cetera, and where it was, and looking at, uh, you know, almost taking a diagnostic and then leveraging the opportunities and, in essence, evolving the company into the future and providing a lot of leadership within that industry as well. So, um, yeah, definitely want to see more, you know, this idea of, of opportunity and innovation. Um, innovation can sometimes be captured within the box of, you know, technological innovation and just relying on technology. And while technology is, is very important and definitely part of that, it's up to us to decide do we want to use it for, you know, generating income in the way that we always have or use it so it has a, multi, um, a multifaceted uh, aspect to it and can, can really lead um, forward-looking strategy that way. I think that's a sort of lovely place to end unless our listeners or uh, Stephanie has any other questions. Yeah, I mean, is there anyone on the line who would like to ask a question? This is an opportunity to kind of dig into some of the business model innovations and speak to someone on the ground as well as someone who views it from, you know, more of an analyst and kind of going and working with many companies across the board. Um, feel free to, 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 to say something at this time or to ask a question. Hi, um, Cristiano, this is J.D. Capuano. I um, am teaching in the BARD program in the spring, and I uh, one of the things I'm working with the students on is um, analytics and then what you do with the data and, uh, once you have it. And I'd be interested in your perspective. You mentioned one of the metrics, uh, a community impact metric. I'm curious how you're using that and then what else that the company is looking at in order to measure success with this business model change? Right, that, that's, a, that's a great question, thank you. Um, many years ago, back in, well, what seems like many years ago, back in 2011, um, we, we felt, well, the company uh, had evolved over the past two years. Um, a lot of the conflicts that I mentioned uh, were were already you know solved or or on the way to being solved, 
and we said, okay, we've been speaking about sustainability as something so uh, diverse, so interconnected, um, and yet we've been working on you know very specific fronts. Um, instead of working sort of in specific boxes, let's let's take a few steps back and and let's discuss uh, what sustainability means for Phoebe. Um, and we we decided that the only way we could really do this was to use a systems thinking model um, that would adopt the concept of sustainability in its broadest sense. So social and environmental aspects, of course, but governance strategy and, and the uh, financial economic dimension. Um, we conducted a, a sort of relatively long but incredibly intense process of sort of nine full day sessions with uh you know staff from all different departments uh being involved and and saying you know what is sustainability for fibria in the short term but thinking long term as well so what did we need to do in the short term and what how could we connect that for the long term um, and we created 90 variables and, and, and the connection, the connections between those variables. So uh, just to give a couple of examples, uh, one variable would be, um, you know, social impact as measured by, you know, number of registered complaints from communities. Um, another impact would be um, the the image that the, that the company had on the news, whether it was primarily positive or negative. And we would connect all those variables together, um, asking the question, is, you know, if, if this increases, does that decrease? And, and, and there was some sort of quantitative uh, uh, exercises uh, regression analysis going on sort of in the back office. But, but we wanted to get at the qualitative connections between sustainability impacts. Um, we, we decided that this was a great way of saying, you know, what is, what is relevant for FIBDIA? What is strategically relevant for FIBDIA in terms of sustainability? And, and, and we saw that there were five sort of broad um, sustainability aspects, um, and, and we said, okay, we need to establish at least one target for each of these. Um, so the, the sort of macro aspects that we mapped out were productivity, uh, environmental restoration, uh, solid waste, and decrease in waste to landfills, um, carbon and climate change, uh, as a forest company, we, we sequester and capture and stock significant amounts of, of carbon. We have a positive footprint, um, even if we take into consideration sort of scopes one, two, and three of our emissions, logistics, and, and production. Um, and the sort of fifth macro aspect was, of course, the social impact that we caused. Um, and we had to create this this metric, and and we so so we have a map where we say how does the increase in favorability in terms of fibria, right? So how does in other words uh, social license to operate the community informally gives fibria? How does that impact on uh, staff motivation? How does that impact on uh, our image in the media? How does that eventually 
sort of impact on our uh, economic and financial growth. Um, so we have we have some of this sort of you know integrated financial non-financial uh, work done, and, and this is sort of the map for our strategy for sustainability, and it's it's how internally. Uh, we can discuss how sustainability connects to corporate strategy. Thanks so much for your question, JD. That was great. Um, and before I know we're we're nearing the end of the hour, so is there anyone else who wants to jump in and ask a one last question? All right. Well, I don't think we have anyone who's going to. So I have a question for you, Christiana, before we wrap up. Um, you know, we've talked a lot about um, the sustainability strategy and how you all are envisioning this Fibria and changing your business model. Um, you know, as someone who, you know, helps to run an MBA program and thinking through all the skill sets it takes to do this work, what would you say is the most important qualities and attributes and skills for our students or anyone who really wants to make big change in a large company? What do you think they need? What do they need to bring to the table right away? Um, I'd say absolutely two things. Um, the capacity for empathy. Uh, we're talking about business, and, and business always creates a, an impact. Uh, our stakeholders always have a, a, a different view uh, from us, and, and that's legitimate, of course. Um, so the capacity for empathy to understand uh, our stakeholders' arguments and engage them in constructive dialogue that is good for, for both parties. Um, and the second aspect that I alluded to um, in the answer to JD's question um, is related to the capacity, and I think this is the essence of the concept of sustainability, to uh, see things systemically. Um, it's, it, you know, sustainability is never just two aspects, two variables. It's it's always a much more complex picture of interdependent interdependent factors, um, and it's 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 quite rare to have that quality, and it's it's an important quality to develop. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for bringing up those two in particular, because I think those are skills that are, you know, don't just come naturally to some people. They take time to build. And, um, you know, it's not just about learning something quick. It's about really understanding who you are as a person to be, you know, and have empathy and also really the idea of systems thinking. So thank you so much for that. Um, before we close, um, Mariano, Rochelle, any final questions or words? Um, well, thanks, you guys, and great speaking with you again, Cristiano. It's nice to put a, put another milestone to the output of the report and to continue this work that Fibria is doing. Um, I would recommend people to check out Fibria's sustainability reports. Um, we do a lot of, you know, report analysis. Well, not a lot, but we do look at quite a few, and um, Fibria always comes out with a really interesting way of integrating financial and sustainability ways the reports and organizing things really well. And so I think it's a really good example of a international company doing really leading and sustainability efforts. So, and, and thank you, Hard MBA. Um, 
uh, a great opportunity to be on here um, after graduating. So thanks again. Yeah, we're so really nice happy to have a conversation with all of you. Thanks for still hanging out with us, Rochelle. <laughs> Christiana, yeah, thank you for calling from international faraway lands, which would probably have nicer weather than New York right now. Um, I'm not so sure, actually. Thank you nope. so much, Stephanie and Mariana, <laughs> for organizing this. Thanks, Bart MBA. Uh, thank you, Rochelle, once again for the continued partnership. It's it's been a pleasure being part of this conversation. Yeah, thank, and thank you all so much for being here today. This has been a lot of fun for us because we have, you know, Rochelle, who's an alum, Mariano, who's a current student, and then Cristiano, who I've now had the pleasure to get to know based in Brazil. So this is a very fun and unique opportunity for us. But um, for everyone on the line, join us for our next Sustainable Business Fridays conversation on December 4th at noon. We'll be speaking with Bill Compton from Grady Medical Services in Atlanta about building a sustainable EMS system. Thank you all for being a part of today's conversation, and a big thank you to Cristiano, Rochelle, and Mariana, and thank you, JD, for your question. Have a great weekend, everyone. Bye. 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 You too. Thanks. Bye. Bye.